Get your Bibles open this morning. How many love the Bible? I mean, you better love the Bible. I'm going to talk about the Bible this morning. I want to talk about God's perfect book. Amen. God's perfect book. Now, I want to put a plug in this morning for um, many of you have already gone and seen it, but if you have not, you have to go see God's Not Dead. It is an awesome, awesome movie. I've already seen it twice, and it was as good the second time. But how many have not gone and seen it yet? Let me see your hands. I recommend it highly, and uh, it was so exciting to know that I was way more excited about this than Son of God or Noah, because I don't have any idea how biblical Noah's going to be, although it probably would be very, you know, have a lot of effects and everything. But this, this movie was doctrinally awesome, and Jesus was mentioned from the beginning to the end. It wasn't just God. I'm talking Jesus, 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 all the way through the movie. It was powerful, amen? So please, not only for your own benefit, not only for the encouragement of your faith, not only to tell somebody about it and take somebody to it, how many can know you could spend the, the best $10 you could ever spend would be to invite someone to go to that movie and pay for them and take them to it. That was a lonely couple amens right there. Let me ask you that again. How many know $10 for a soul is a pretty good price? Amen. I believe that atheists could get saved at this, mo- at this movie. Anybody could get saved at this movie. Invite somebody. Say, hey, I'll take you to the movies. I'll pay. Because you might say, hey, let's go to the movies. I ain't got the money or I can't or whatever. Just, I'll take you to the movies. Amen. Go to go. Don't go to some place to eat once, and and take someone to the movies. And uh, this this movie will touch them. And besides all of that, um, it's it, we need to support the people who made this movie, so that they can hopefully make another one. I don't know who made it, but I'm telling you, it was a good good movie. And I was very encouraged that we went Friday night, um, and we got there at, to the 9:50 movie about nine o'clock. And they told us it was sold out, and we found out that there was a 9.30 movie. My wife went into the wrong theater, and the 9.30 movie was sold out. We barely got into the 9.50. And then me and Brian, or then me and Brian were going, went last night, and we went to Denton again at the 7. We got there at 6.30, 6.40, and the 7 o'clock and the 8 o'clock were sold out already, and the 9 o'clock had 9 tickets left. And we had to go all the way back down to Louisville, and the youth were coming out of watching it, and it was pretty full. And the 7 o'clock we were in was full again. These are big theaters. So praise God, amen, that people are going out and supporting this movie. And you know the difference. I'm not trying to knock one movie or another, but I, there are some doctrinal things in the, in the movie Son of God that are not biblical. Although someone could still get the message, and I'm not, I'm not, not you know, trying to sit up here and knock it, but there are some, you know, things they changed and that's what happens but Brian went to the son of God and it was him and an older couple and that was it and they left halfway through the movie so he was by himself in the movie theater so there's a big difference on how the support is going for that movie so I just encourage you you know do do your due diligence sometimes we go oh man there ain't nothing to watch there's no good movies well why don't you go support the good ones when they come out so they can make some more 
Amen? But I, I, I actually was, I was thinking about something before the movie, and this just com- confirmed it and got me excited that I'm going to kind of go off of this, something from, from the movie, sort of, but I, like I said I already had it going. And I want to talk about the Bible. And I want to talk about how amazing this book is. Amen? How many, how many have got at least a Bible? in your hand, in your house, amen, I was challenging you to make sure you bring your Bible to church, make sure you read your Bible, make sure you focus on these words, how many know today, in, uh, Dylan, can you do me a favor real quick, there's a book on top of my desk called The Book That Transformed Nations, I meant to bring it out and forgot, I want to read a quick story from that, how many know that in the United States, we are spoiled, and we have, in many households, five, six, ten, twenty Bibles, laying around, sometimes collecting dust because we don't read them all. I have many Bibles, some different study ones and things. But church, this book, I want to talk about the God's perfect book this morning. This book is so amazing. Thank you, sir. So amazing. And I want to get, I want to show you something and tell you something this morning that I think is going to increase your faith. How many love your faith to be increased even more? I love, I believe in this book already. But I love when I find stuff that just makes me more have my faith grow. That movie made my faith grow. This book makes my faith grow. But I found something I think if you're taking notes will really excite you this morning. But I want to start off by showing how spoiled we are with the Word of God and how important it is to understand that this is just not another book. Okay, this is not just a bestseller. It's not just a good book. It is this. I, I'm trying to think of a title. It's God's perfect book. There's no other way to describe it. It's not just a book. It's God's perfect book. There's a story in uh, this book I was reading, and it says, just listen quickly to it to show you how spoiled we are and how important the Bible is. Many years ago, in the foothills of the, and you might have heard me read this once before, in the foothills of the eastern Himalayas, a missionary was preaching. As he stood in the dusty village marketplace, he held his Bible up and said, this is God's book. Then he told the people what was in it. After he spoke, the crowd scattered, and a man approached him, layered in hand-woven robes of a village high, high, high up in the Himalayas. He asked the missionary, is that really God's book? Yes, this is God's book. For every area of life, it is. And the villager said, can I tell you a story of my tribe? And I think this is interesting this morning as we had different people here from different countries and not so much in the United States, but tribes are very common around the world. And uh, he says, he began to tell the story that had been passed down from his father and his father's father and his father before him. Their tribe had come from lands far west of the great mountains. Now I'm just going to stop for one second in this story and get you to remember that the world does not revolve around the United States of America. We live here and we're from here, but we forget that we were one of the last places to be discovered, okay? Just because we've been blessed and we're favored and all that stuff, you got to remember that this is a big world. Sometimes it hurts us that we haven't been outside and traveled and gone around the world and got on a plane for 25 hours and seen how big this world is. Way, way, way back in the day, as they would say, amen, this book was being uh, scattered around the world for thousands of years, okay? So I just had to plug that in. So it says they're way, way up in the Himalayan mountains. It says, this is what this guy says, we always lived by God's book. But our ancestors were driven from their lands. And he went on to tell how they made the perilous journey east over the mountains. Now how many know the Himalayas are known for being very large? 
And it says, while making the crossing, our people were caught in a storm and lost the book. They lost the book. Now his tribe did not, now his tribe, this is the guy telling the story, did not know how to live. This, they had been looking for the book for many generations. Two weeks ago, an old woman in our tribe, the man says, had a dream. She dreamed of a foreigner standing in this village holding up the book. If the elders sent someone on this day, he would find the foreigner. They sent me. He finished. He says, will you bring God's book to my tribe so that we will know how to live again? Tell me that's not a powerful story. See, we take for granted that we have five copies in our house, that we can open up our phone and read the Bible, that we can go on a computer and on and on and on. But do you realize that that book is not so, so heavily populated around the world and in some countries around the world, they cannot talk about the book? And if they're found with the book, they're killed? So I just want to give that as a lay-in that this is not just any ordinary book. This is God's perfect book. This book, as you open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 1, is a book that has 66 books inside of it. Now make sure that you know that that's how many books your Bible has. If your Bible has more or less than 66, then you need to throw that one away and go get a new one. 66 is the number. And in John chapter 1, we're going to read in a second, 66 books written over a span of four, sorry, 1,600 years. That's a long time. By 40 different people. Not 40 people living in the same, not 40 people in a church in the same city in the same century. 40 people. Can you imagine taking 40 of us this morning, scattering our lives out over 1,600 years, and us writing 66 books that made any sense? Think about it. And I'm not talking about the knowledge we have in the Bible. I'm talking about from scratch. Now, one thing I want to say as we get into John chapter 1 real quick. Let's just read this. Now, I better say it before I forget it. Let's, I'm going to read this in one second. I want, I want to kill a thought this morning. One of the greatest things that happened to us, if you're a soul winner, and I believe there's some soul winners in here, people who like to lead people to Jesus, who, people who like to tell people about Jesus, people who like to work on that crown, Amen. I believe that that's our goal this morning. And if you're not a soul winner, it's not too late. But Proverbs 11.30 says, He who wins souls is wise. And I'm working for a crown this morning. And I want you to work for a crown. And there is a way that you can reach people, but you need to know how they think. And one of the biggest ways people think this morning around the world is they think that this book was written by man. Okay? Now, I'm going to mess you up for just a second. I'm going to mess you up for just a second because I'm going to tell you it was. Don't deny that anymore. Don't say, no, it wasn't. Because yes, it was. Don't get it twisted. It was written by men inspired by God. But do you realize that the fact that it was written by man is what makes it so powerful? I'm going to let that sink in for just a second. Because I know for a long time we have people tell us, don't tell, make sure you tell them people. It's not written by man. It's not written by man. We get that pounded into our head. But I want you to realize that the fact that it was written by the hand of men, inspired by God, is what makes it so amazingly real. Okay, you following me? 
So get that in your mind as you go to evangelism 101 because that's one of the biggest things you're going to run into is people are going to say, oh, that's a book bitten by men and it's been manipulated and it's been this and it's been that. Well, I'm going to show you something this morning that will absolutely refute the fact that it's been manipulated and messed by men. Written by men, yes. Manipulated, no. Come and give me an amen. I thought I was going to get a good amen on that one. John chapter 1, look at this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things say all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made amen nothing that was made was made unless Jesus had his signature on it and you realize in John chapter 1 the Bible says that he is the verb he is the word a verb is a word in action Jesus Christ is the verb and the Bible says that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were together when they said, let us make man in our image. Jesus Christ did not come on the scene 2,000 years ago. Jesus was the scene 6,000 years ago when the word was written and when God created the earth. Amen. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all together. In the beginning, one more time, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, for time, I'm going to let you just uh, move there if you want to, but I'm going to read just a couple more scriptures, but then I'm going to show you something. 2 Timothy 3.16, very common verse about the Bible, says, All Scripture, how many know all still means all, no matter what language it is? All means everything. Every word Every comma, every exclamation point, every question mark, every hyphen, every, everything in that book says all is, Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's what the Bible's for. This is God's manual for your life. You need to stop looking at this as just some neat book that has some really think good things in it and, oh, I carry a Bible. You need to get to a place where there is nothing on this entire earth that is more important to you than this book right here. Let me tell you something. I, I, we've been talking about for a long time, and I'm just going to throw this in because of this point. We've been talking about for a long time the return of Christ and the coming days and, and the tribulation and the, the millennial reign and all the things that are going to come out of Revelations, uh, the book of Revelations. Do you realize that when Jesus does come back, this will no longer be sitting on the shelf, but this will become a commodity worldwide. It will become scarce and it will be destroyed. People will be trying to destroy it because they'll know that the answers are in this book and it'll be like never before. I want you to fall in love with the word of God today while days of Noah are going on. Where there's an understanding and a love for this word when everything seems to be okay. It's peace when I need peace. It's joy when I need joy. It's direction when I need direction. It's hope when I need hope. It's love when I need love. It is my instructions for my life. 
I don't need to go look for somebody else to tell me what to do. I need to get into the word of God, God's perfect book. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received, watch this, the word of God, which you heard from us, this is important, you welcomed it not as the words of men, but as truth, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now I want to show you some stuff this morning and get your notes ready, get ready to write some things down because this is another one of those messages that will help you share your faith. Along with the lines of the consolations I've told you, along the lines of different things I've been talking about to help you reach people and show them that this is God's perfect book. Now this is, this is something that is really truly amazing this morning. How many realize and know that when you begin to talk about prophecies if, if someone were to ask me why do you believe that the bible is what it says it is why do you believe that it's god's written word why you know there's many reasons i could give and one of the biggest reasons is it has changed my life but one of the the best reasons you can give is prophecy because prophecy is something that is supernatural Prophecy is something that cannot be copied or manufactured outside of God's supernatural power. Because we can do some guessing, and we can do some estimating, and we can do some, some thinking sometimes, and we can get to a place where we might be able to get something right, but I guarantee you outside of the sun rising and the moon coming out next week, you can't guesstimate anything that's going to happen next week because this life and this world is so changing all the time. But you see the scriptures, and God knew what he was doing. He, he's, he's God. We don't have to try to defend or help God. We need to just read his word and believe it. But he didn't leave it at that. He says, let me, let me do some stuff to help you out because there's going to come times when people aren't going to believe and they're going to have questions. And he knew that people would come along and write other books. Y'all realize that? People have come along and they've written other books. I'm not going to go into names this morning. You know the names. There's many of them. Some in the last couple hundred years. One of the biggest, largest religions in the world that's one of the fastest growing in the world today wrote their book 700 years after the Bible was written. How many can say too late? I was talking with some friends the other day and I thought to myself, if I was going to start a religion... I would be more original and I would make up my own instead of taking another book copying about 90% of it and changing about 10 be original all these people have taken the book and they've taken out truths and kept some truth kept just enough truth to poison people just enough poison to kill people and then we got all these books and religions and all these things God never intended but he has a perfect book and his book cannot be manipulated if you try. And that's what I want to show you this morning. I want to show you this morning that the book of Daniel, for example, was written 530 years before Jesus came on the scene. 530 years. Now, how many in here, I got to ask this again, how many math people I have in here? I got to make sure I got some math people. Is there a few? Come on, let me see your hand. Don't be ashamed. I'm not going to call you a nerd or anything like that. Amen. I got at least four or five that like math. Amen. How many don't like math? 
Okay. How many, how many like when somebody does the math equation for you? Okay, that's me. So I got everybody now. I got the likers, the non-likers, and the laziers. And that's me. I'm there, okay? But I did some equations for you because there's a fact that math cannot lie. How many would, how many would admit that? Numbers cannot lie. Five plus five is ten, no matter what you say. And there are people who will say five plus five is eight, and they'll believe it till the day they die, but five plus five is ten. Can I get an amen? How many are following me this morning? You can ask somebody, hey, what's two times two? That's pretty easy, right? Just going elementary. What's two times two? Just shout it out. Okay. Some people say two times two is ten. And no, it's not. Yes, it is. And they will believe that. There are people today who are believing two times two is ten. Are y'all following the example of where I'm going? Math does not lie. Numbers does not lie. God's book does not lie. Daniel was written 530 years before Jesus came on the scene, which means he was not only prophesying things that were going to happen with Jesus Christ when he walked the earth, but he was prophesying more than that. He prophesied 2,000 years beyond Jesus to the book of Revelation. And everything that is in that book, church, everything that Daniel said is coming to life today in the book of Revelation. The book of Micah, and Isaiah, Micah's a minor prophet, Isaiah's a major prophet, was written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. That is now almost 3,000 years ago. Has anybody been around long enough to even fathom what 3,000 years is? I haven't. That's a long time. Yet he began to prophesy and began to speak under the inspiration of God and write that perfect book of Isaiah, that perfect book of Micah, that perfect book of Daniel. Let me go back one step further. How many remember good old David who wrote the Psalms? You realize that the Psalms were at an average written 1,000 years before Jesus came on the scene. That's a long, long time. We have these other religions that are writing their books that much after Jesus came. These guys are writing the Bible before Jesus came. 1,000 years. And I want to get you to think about something for just a second. And I want, to, be, I want to, to show you that prophecies in the Bible are the greatest, most amazing mathematical proof that God's perf book is perfect. Think about this for just a second. I know it's Sunday morning. I hope you got some good sleep. I'm not, this, isn't, this isn't a class, but I want you to really pay attention to something. Amen? I, I was intrigued as, as I was uh, paying attention in that movie. And like I said, I, I was kind of already on this Thursday or Friday, but then I saw the movie and it just kind of excited me even more. And, and I won't tell too much of the movie, but it is a lot of it's about a college and, 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 and a classroom. And I wish I'd have paid more attention when I was in school. I was too busy with sports. Amen? I think I'm smarter than I, than I, than I think I am. I just, didn't, I just didn't exercise it. But I began to think about this, and, and I, I, just think about this. If one person, okay, one person, say Rowdy this morning. We're going to talk about Rowdy, not his life or anything, but just Rowdy, okay? If 50 prophecies were made about Rowdy, okay, 50 things that were going to happen from today, let's just go 20 years in advance, if someone was to try to say 50 things that were going to happen to Rowdy over the next 20 years, how many know the likelihood of those happening would be very, very slim? 50 things. 
And then if you were to say 25 of those predictions of something that was going to happen to Rowdy were going to be things that other people would do to him that were out of his control, that he didn't have anything to do with, how many know that would be really slim? For example, how can somebody arrange to be born to a specific family? Did anybody in here... I'd love to meet somebody here that had control over where you were born and who you were born to. I just want to know if there's anybody in here that had that kind of control. That's pretty supernatural. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you wish you would have been born somewhere else or to different parents or any of that stuff because I know that's a whole other subject and a touchy one at that. How does one arrange their own death? How does one begin to go about arranging things so that these things in the Bible could come true? Because you have to realize prophecy is either something that is arranged or it's supernatural. How many are following me? It's either God's real word, God's in control of it, God supernaturally has his hand on it, or it's arranged, or it's lucky. How many know lucky is just a word? Pastor Andrew was talking about that a couple weeks ago. Let's stop telling, hey, I'm, I'm lucky. No, you're not. Not in God. You're blessed. Luck is for the Irish. Amen? That four-leaf clover. There's, there's, a, there's a tournament going on right now of basketball. Every year, March Madness, they call it. 64 teams. 64 teams going to this tournament. One will win it out of 64 teams. And Warren Buffett, how many know who Warren Buffett is? Warren Buffett has a lot of money. He could give us a billion dollars today, this church, and never knew he had it. Never knew he gave it to us. If you're listening to Warren Buffett, if you're listening to any family members to Warren Buffett, Victory World Outreach, 1131 Fort Worth Drive, Denton, Texas, 76205. Send that check. We will do something with it. Amen. You have too much money, and we could use some of it. He said, I'll give, they do these brackets where people go and try to figure out who's going to win what games and who's going to win the championship. You realize what the odds are to be right on who's going to win that team. Out of 64 teams, how one is going to win it. And you might say, and say, I'm having a good year. I'm from Arizona. And I'm a University of Arizona fan. And my team's been ranked number one most of the season. So I'm super happy. I won't talk about Brian's Kansas team or anything like that. They haven't been number one, but I just threw that in because I got the mic. But my team's been number one most of the seasons, and there's two or three or four or five teams, top five. You can say, well, that team's going to win because they've been number one all year long. They've won a lot of games. But in this tournament, y'all still with me? I haven't lost you, have I, because I'm talking about sports? In this tournament, about half of those teams get in because they're in a small, tiny little conference, and they were good enough to win that little conference, and they get a chance to go to what they call the big dance. They get to play against these powerhouses. And there's always upsets. Now, number 16, there's always, there's four brackets of 16 teams. One seed against 16, then two to 15, and, and so on and so forth. Never in the history of the tournament has a 16th seed beat a number one seed, ever. But when you get to the 15th seed down, it is wide open. And the funnest thing to watch is what they call the upsets. 
You got these tiny little schools, population like 5,000 in the city. You, you say the name of the, of, the, of, the, of the school, you don't even know where it is. I was recruited by a lot of teams when I was in high school that I still to this day don't know where they were. A lot of small schools. And so you watch for the upsets. And on the very first day, I hope there's not any Duke fans in here. Duke played a, a school called Mercer. Not Mercy, Mercer. Hope you're not from Mercer, amen? I'm not trying to dog your school. Mercer beat Duke. Duke was like a number two or number three seed, and they lost to the 14th or 15th seed. David took down Goliath. You know why I'm saying all this? Because there's probabilities, and someone asked me, hey, have you filled out the bracket? Nope, I don't waste my time on that, because it's impossible. Because you get two teams in there, and one team can beat the other, always. It's, it's just, they have a bad day, the other one has a good one. But Warren Buffett said, I'll give a billion dollars to anybody who can get that bracket right with no, no misses. One billion dollars. Now I guarantee you this year, I didn't fill out a bracket. I wasn't going to waste my time. There was a whole lot of people who filled out a bracket. Guess how many people won after the first round? Zero. Nobody won the billion. He still has it. So Warren Buffett, if you're listening, send that billion dollars you didn't pay to somebody else to the church. Amen. We'll take it. I'm talking about probabilities this morning. I want to get into just for a second the probabilities of this book being so perfect. Because when you begin to talk about perfection, how many know that the Bible says there is no perfection outside of Jesus Christ? None. They said, Jesus, good teacher. He said, who do you call good? There is no one good but God. Now, obviously, we know Jesus was because he was God, but he was on the earth pointing up to the Father. Nobody's good but the Father. So, I'm going to show you a couple probabilities this morning. I want to take this because this will increase your and, 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 and increment your faith. But I want to give you another example, kind of like the Warren Buffett thing with the, with the tournament. David Greenglass was a World, II trader. Sorry, World War II trader. He gave atomic secrets to the Russians and then fled to Mexico after the war. His conspirators arranged to help him by planning a meeting with the secretary of the Russian ambassador in Mexico City so that they could give him a passport so he could go back to Russia. Proper identifications for both of these men that were going to meet became very vital. Now pay attention. Greenglass was to identify himself with six prearranged, six prearranged signs, meaning that there were six things that this man had to do exactly like they told him so he'd be in the right place at the right time. How many are following me? Six things. I need you to do these six things exactly like I ask. And if you do, you will have a passport safe back to Russia. How many know he had some good motives to get back to Russia so he wouldn't be killed for being a traitor? So it says, number one, you need to go to Mexico City. Got there. Green glass, when he got there, was to write a note to the secretary, signing his name as I. Jackson. Number two, after three days, not two, not four, he was to go to the Plaza de Colon in Mexico City. Number three, he was to stand before the statue of Columbus. Not a statue of anybody else. How many are following what I'm saying here? Number four, with his middle finger placed in, 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 uh, in a guidebook, not his small finger, not his thumb, his middle finger. Actually, whoops. Yeah, that one. The one you don't want to turn around, amen? 
with his middle finger placed in the guidebook, he, he was supposed to, number five, when he appro- was approached, he was to say it was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. And number six, the secretary would then give him a passport. Now, how many understand that in those six things, there were many variables? And for that thing to happen, everything had to be done exactly like it was prearranged. Why did it work? Because these six identifying characters were impossible for the secretary not to identify that this was this green glass guy as the proper contact. Now, think about this. Out of those just six things that he had to do to get this passport, what if he would not have made it to Mexico City? If he doesn't go to Mexico City, two, three, four, five, and six don't ever happen. He gets to Mexico City and he can't find, for instance, the statue. I, I'm just going to take. I'm just taking a second to show you how just on six little things, one of those things could very easily be messed up, and that that thing does not happen. Y'all following me? If one thing messed up, the plan would have been aborted. Just one. Just one out of the six would have been aborted. So I want to show you something this morning in math. Like I said, I did the math for you. Pay attention, please. I want to look at a mathematical probability of some prophecies. Now, for taking notes this morning, I want to give you a few that are very important to our faith. So you know to start off with, I'll go backwards to forwards, then forwards backwards. There's over 11,000 prophecies in the Bible. 11,000. There are 2,500 prophecies just about Jesus. That's a lot more than six. Now, some of y'all are already wandering off to Golden Corral, but whoever wants to pay attention, y'all are going to get something powerful this morning. The science of probability attempts to determine the chance of some given event being occurring, okay? And the value and the accuracy of this is scientific. So someone said, hey, we need to figure out possibilities here, and probabilities, and the Bible can't be real because it was written by men, and it can't be real because it was written by so many men, and it can't be real because it was written by so many over so many years, and it can't be real because there's so many cultures involved, and it can't be real because there's so many intellect, and it can't be, can't be, it can't be, it can't be all down the line of people say. But a guy at Westmont College, a scientist, said, I'm going to try to figure out some probabilities of how these, this man could fill out these major prophecies concerning the, the Messiah. And he said, I'm not just going to do this myself. I'm going to get 600 university students to help me. And they began to study. They weighed out all the factors. They discussed different prophecies at length, which I'll tell you in just a second what they are. We're not going to them for time. They made estimates, conservative enough to know that there was finally going to be a unanimous agreement on whether this was true or not. Then Professor Stoner took these estimates, made them even more conservative, and encouraged other skeptics and scientists to make their own estimates. So bringing all these different people in to give their opinion on this thing. And then he finally submitted these figures to a review to an American scientific affiliation. So that they could put their sample approval and say, okay, this, is, this has been done like this and this is true. And they presented it and it, was, and it was passed. Now let me give you some examples. Write these down for notes. This is, this, I'm gonna, this is gonna be the message right here. It's just gonna be a couple minutes. There are eight p- 
powerful, very powerful prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament for the New. There are 2,500 of him. I'm just mentioning eight. These are prophets. Remember I talked about Micah, Daniel, Isaiah, Psalms, David, written thousands of years ago, 500 to 1,000 years ago, way before. Here's one. Micah 5.2 said that Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 said Jesus would be born in the city of Bethlehem. How many realized this morning that Jesus Christ was not even, his parents were not even from Bethlehem? He's a Nazarene. But he's going to be born in Bethlehem. How many know just that starting off alone is messed up? Micah says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Number two, I'm not reading these scriptures, not going into them for time, but you can write these down. Number two, Malachi 3.1. You think Malachi 3 just talks about finances. It also says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Micah 3.1 is prophesying that John the Baptist will come before Jesus and prepare the way for Jesus. Number three, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Behold, the king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, listen, lowly and riding upon a colt. Zechariah 9.9 says hundreds of years before Jesus comes along that he is going to ride on a colt. That's number three. Number four. Actually, before I say four, watch this. So those first three prophecies is God in his perfect book speaking to men Hundreds and hundreds and up to a thousand years before saying this. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And he will have John the Baptist go before him. And he will ride in on a donkey. And you tell me what the probabilities are of just those three things happening. Being born in Bethlehem. Having somebody go before him and prepare the way. And then ride on a donkey. That's enough right there to close the message up. I believe. That's enough right there. Three prophecies. Because I just read you that one story. It only takes one little thing to happen to stop one of those things from happening, which a domino effect occurs and stops all the other ones from happening. Do you realize that when you begin to mount up numbers, every time you add a number, it gets more impossible for it to happen? You go back to that tournament, it wouldn't be so hard to try to guess, guess who's going to win a tournament if there were six teams. Four teams, you'd have a one in four chance. But when there's 64, your odds get harder and harder. How many are still with me? Number four, Zechariah 13, 6. And says, one shall say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? And he shall say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Zechariah 13, 6 says, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. What are the odds that Jesus is going to be betrayed? Number five. Watch this. Zechariah eleven twelve. Oh, we don't need the Old Testament. That's what some people say. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. And if no, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven twelve is is prophesying that Judas will sell Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. 
What are the odds? Number six. I'm just choosing eight. Zechariah 11.13. Boy, Zechariah had it going on. He says, And the Lord said to me, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. He prophesies in Zechariah 11.13 that Judas will take those 30 pieces of silver and give them back. Y'all ain't saying nothing. So now, what are the probabilities that this man who was born in Bethlehem followed in and led in by a man making a way would get on a colt and then be betrayed by a friend for the exact amount of 30 pieces of silver? And if that wasn't enough, the man who betrayed him doesn't take the 30 pieces of silver but goes back and gives it back. What are the odds of those six things happening? Well, I'm going to tell you in a second. Number seven. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before the shearers is dumb. So he opens not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7 prophesies that this son of God, this man, this Messiah, would not only die, but he would stand before a court and not defend himself. What are the odds? And finally, number eight. Psalms 22, 16. How many years before that was? How many years before did? Thousand years. Thousand years, David said these words. Now you pay attention to number eight. I'm going to focus on this more than anything. One thousand years before, God says through David in the book of Psalms. See, let me stop there for a second. We, we don't understand how perfect this book is because we don't understand that it's a puzzle. Why do people take things out of context? Because they take things out of a verse in a certain place and make a doctrine out of it. Who would have thought that in the book of Psalms, the praise chapter, the praise book, the song book, the songwriter, that he would be prophesying about Jesus? But you have to read the scriptures and study the scriptures and find all these things and then understand what he's talking about. Then go find it in the New Testament and then parallel it and go back and forth and around to realize how amazingly perfect this book written by man is. Because he says in Psalms twenty-two sixteen, For dogs have come past compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, the piercing of my hands and my feet. David wasn't talking about himself. He was prophesying Jesus. Now, let me tell you something that makes this even more amazing. When David prophesied that, crucifixion had never been done. Nobody had ever been nailed to a tree before in their hands and their feet. David was saying something inspired by the living God that he had no clue what he was saying. Do you realize that there's scriptures in, in the, in the, in the, in the New, New or Old Testament that prophesied things in the New Testament that they had no clue what they were saying? 
Well, it'd be easy for us today to try to, how many have ever understood that as you're reading the Bible, sometimes what they said don't make sense to us because of the culture we live in. Why do you think the guy felt in the Old Testament in Zechariah and Zephaniah when they were trying to explain an atomic bomb? And when they were trying to explain, excuse me being direct on this, where the bomb actually says specifically that their skin will melt away from them. And he's describing what an atomic bomb does, a nuclear atomic bomb does to our bodies. That's in the Bible. He's describing something. Oh, but it was made by man. Yeah, a man that didn't have a clue what he was saying because he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He couldn't have made that up if he tried. He didn't even know what that was. We're here and we live in this day and age and we don't know what it is. Oh, some of y'all missed that. That went right over you. We don't, I don't know what a atomic bomb does or how it works, but he did 2,500 years ago. And here it is coming into pass. Oh, they must be making that atomic bomb as they read the book of Zephaniah. What, how does it work? How, what do they say? Come on, be, be wise. Let me break this down for you real quick. Eight verses. 2,500 were written about them. Watch this, 456. Some of y'all need to sleep more at night. I'm just going to throw that in. Maybe we need to start serving coffee. Or maybe I just need to shout more or jump up and down or grab that fan and spin around or something. I don't know. I don't know what I need to do. Woo, God, don't let them miss this. Thank God we have it on audio. You can listen to it later. Get a cup of coffee, listen to it again. Eyes are heavy in this place. Do I talk that boring? Amen. The fact, okay, remember the science part? 600 students? Where are you getting your math from? Pastor, I'm getting it from 600 students at a college with a professor and all kinds of other people and then stamped and approved. The odds of Jesus being born in Bethlehem are one in 300,000. Just that alone. Okay, I'm just, just throw that out real quick. One in 300,000. They took the population of that day, they took the population of today, they averaged it out, they did all this other stuff the scientists do, and they came up with the number that if the, the, the chance of a man of saying, hey, this guy's going to be born in Bethlehem, the chance of that is one in 300,000. That's a lot. Now, let me break that down for you real quick. How, how big is that? Let me go down for a second. If I, had a, if I had a, just to bring it back to elementary for a second, if I had a hat and I took 10 tickets, and out of those 10 tickets that I put in the hat, I marked one as the winner, and I had a blindfolded person pull out one, he would have what in chance of what to get it? Pretty, that's pretty tough as itself. One in 10. But one in 300,000? Chance that this would take place? Now watch this. That's off of one prophecy. Let's suppose that we did the chances of one, or sorry, of eight of those prophecies we just said coming to pass. Let's go from one to eight. Let's just jump real quick and, and not, get, you know, do two, three, four, five. Okay, one in 300,000. Let's go to the eight. What are the possibilities of 
God being right about these eight prophecies. The number is one, this is for a few math people, in 10 to the 17th power. That's one, and I saw y'all some college students smile. Like, go, I heard that number before. One in 10, that means one in 17 zeros. Now, I, my head only goes up to about a billion. That's like nine zeros, right? Something like that. Then you get to like a trillion that's like 12. Then you get past that and it's you know, like a waste of time. Because you can't fathom it anyways. That's where, our, you know, our, our debt $16 trillion. We don't even know what $16 trillion is. Forget paying it back. We don't even know what it is. How do you pay back something? You don't, the government's like, hey, you owe us. Man, forget it. We don't even know how much it is. So one with 17 zeros chance for eight prophecies to be fulfilled correctly out of 456 just about Jesus. Now, now I'm going to break this down for you. And what's really cool about this is in this, in this scientific study, he actually, they actually use Texas, which is cool. I don't even know where this college is. But here's what that means. I showed you the one in ten in the hat. Let me show you what this is. How many have ever seen a silver dollar? Probably about that big, maybe. One in ten to the 17th power. Here's what the possibility would be of that being right. You would take enough silver dollars to lay across the entire state of Texas. Two feet deep. This is scientific. This is students. This is not me making this up. Two feet deep in this church would be a lot. How many know that Texas is big? You drive across Texas forever. We go to conference and you're in a car for eight hours before you get out of Texas and we're on the north part of it. Texas is big. Two feet of silver dollars over the entire state of Texas. And one of those is the one marked. One. And you tell somebody, you, have, you can go anywhere in Texas you want. You find that one coin, you win. Y'all following me? Y'all as blown away as me? The probabilities of eight, these eight prophecies that I just told you being possible with all the factors is that. Man, God's perfect book. That's impressive. But there was 456 prophecies about Jesus. I, that's a lot of math, Donnie. I don't even know how to even, you can't even... I don't even know how to divide 456 and 8, let alone try to figure out how many zeros that is. But, remember I told you it was 2,500 about Jesus? Then I broke it down to 456. Well, as the musicians are coming, let me throw out one more crazy number for you. Does anybody in here know what an electron is? Okay. You've at least heard the name. Not, not Johnny Neutron or Electron, amen? Jimmy Neutron, sorry. 
Some of y'all, some of y'all Jimmy Neutron fans corrected me. Hey, it ain't Johnny Neutron. Hey, don't, don't, you got to realize I call bike, I call bikers bicyclists, so I got to be careful. <laughs> some of y'all were here on that Wednesday. Eight prophecies, one in 17th power, 10th, however you say that, 17 zeros, probability of that being right. If you were to take the whole 456 prophecies about Jesus Christ himself, now realize that's just Jesus. That's not what's going to happen in Revelations. That's not all these other prophecies. These are specifically to Jesus and exactly what he did on the earth. You realize how he died, where he died, when he died, everything that happened was in the Bible. Prophesied. It's not like this was just some great story that unfolded. Everything happened just like they said. But if all 456 prophecies were to happen, the probabilities goes to 1 to the 10th power of 157. 157 zeros. And they try, T-R-Y, to get us to understand that by saying that that's as many electrons as there are in two of our universes that we only have one of that we know. Did that that might have gone over someone's head. I got it went over mine at first. I'm just trying to say, you know what that means? <laughs> I said yesterday, if somebody says the Bible's not real, say shut up. <laughs> shut up. Mama told me not to say shut up. Sometimes you just gotta say shut up. The Bible says only a fool says in his heart there is no God. Wow. I already believed. But man, when I hear stuff like that by scientists and students and people trying, you realize that when people try to disprove the Bible, they get saved? If you want to get someone saved, go tell them to spend some time disproving the Bible. You'll get them for sure. Because they can't. It's impossible. But the problem is, is we don't ever take the time to think about this stuff. You can honestly tell somebody, listen, the Bible is God's perfect book. If you could take the time to build a relationship with somebody, you could tell them these numbers. You could be like, how do you explain that? And the only answer they're going to give you is going to be something that ain't true. They beat around the bush. They're going to get angry. They, whatever. But they can't, you can't argue with math. Enough electrons to fill two universes. We don't even know how big this universe really is. That's a lot. So I want to encourage you this morning that what, what you're reading this morning is God's perfect book. And if it says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. If he says that he can do something for you, he can do it. If he says there's a heaven and there's a hell, there is. If he says that there's salvation only in his name, that's where there's salvation. And on and on and on. If he says there's hope for your situation, there's hope. You read that book and you don't wonder anymore. You don't go, oh, could this be? It is. It is. I am that I am, he said. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God. Nothing made was without Him. 